You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, good evening, Lionel. Good evening, Daniel. Good evening from the velodrome in Roubaix. Another bright, sunny early evening in northeastern France. And this is Arrive by the Cycling Podcast. Now, the concept of this when we came up with it was that it was going to be our hot take on the monuments, the biggest of the classics. And we were going to sum up everything that had happened in around 25 or 30 minutes, weren't we? That was a that was the idea. I think we've got our... What it actually is, is likely to be is a symphony of barriers being dismantled well it could well be the, the velodrome in time-honored cycling podcast style i think absolutely they're actually a, a sort of group of belgian fans who i think i don't want to defame them but i think they may have had a beer or two this afternoon there was a running race down the finish straight about five minutes ago and i was impressed everyone managed to stay on their feet but as you say daniel they're dismantling the uh, the barriers for Paris bay um well the barriers are in the the grass track in the centre where they had the podium, of course, where uh, the winner was crowned this afternoon, probably about an hour and a half ago now, maybe a, maybe a little bit more than that. But yeah, Arrive is supposed to be our succinct summary of the classics, but today's race has left my head absolutely spinning. I don't know about you. you, you probably were able to pay a bit more attention to it on the TV. I was sort of here and there darting around a bit. And I, every time I went to the loo or went to get a sandwich, I came back and it was like watching a different race. Well, I was going to say, I haven't been as confused since I saw Mulholland Drive at the cinema in 2001. There was new characters, flashbacks, apparitions, lots that I didn't understand. And I said to you, we were, we were discussing the race all afternoon on text, weren't we? And I said to you at one point, it was like watching a football match with four balls on the pitch. It was, it was. And, and we were... Well, we did the um, the unthinkable that journalists sometimes do. I was starting to think of the outcome that would make our job easier, and that would have been if Mohoric had just <laughs> stayed away and just given us a simple narrative. But it was a lot more complex than that. Let's have the moments of the monument, and I really have tried to condense this down, so it's by no means exhaustive. The winner, Dylan Van Bala of Ineos Grenadiers, in really impressive fashion because they started it and they finished it. Uh, the race was split with over 200 kilometres to go. There was no more than a breath of crosswind, really, but it was enough to split the bunch in two. Still 50 kilometres to go until the first section of cobbles. And, well, Van Aert, Van Der Poel, Askreen, Stefan Kung, they were among the riders caught in Group 2. The first sort of serious break contained Matti Mohoric of uh, Bahrain, the Milan San Remo winner, of course, Davide Ballerini of Quickstep, Tom de Vrindt of Intermarché, Laurent Pichon of Arkea Samsic and Casper Pedersen of DSM. There were some unfortunate moments for Van Aert because he punctured on the Arenberg section right at the start of the section and, and took a while to get a wheel and, uh, and get himself back up. Quite a long chase. Up at the front, it was whittled down to three, Mohoric, de Vrindt and Pichon. And then it was down to two. And then finally down to just one because Mohoric punctured with 37 and a half kilometers to go leaving De Vrindt, the 30 year old Belgian from nearby Verne just over the border in uh, Belgium he was out in front leading Paris Bay he must have thought Christmas had come early 
And uh, just before that, Van Aert had another puncture and had to chase back a second time. Van Baal's first little acceleration came with around 50 kilometers to go. Uh, perhaps that was signaling his intent, but the race-winning move came with about 26 kilometers to go. He bridged up to Mohoric, who got himself back up to the front with Lampart and De Vriend, and then all of a sudden Van Baal was alone. There was still drama, though, on the run into the finish. Uh, Yves Lampart was uh, brought down, got, uh, well, tangled up with a spectator is a polite way of putting it. Um, a spectator got too close to Yves Lampart. That denied him a place on the podium. So Van Baalert had the velodrome all to himself and then there was a sprint finish for second and third. Van Aert got that. <laughs> Stefan Kung got third place and, well, it was the fastest ever. I know you're at the Lance Losk, the Lille Lance Derby last night. It sounds like some of the hooligans have followed you to well, the velodrome. They have, haven't they? I think they they could sense I was recording something and decided to shout. Now, old Lionel would have got very annoyed about that, but new Lionel <laughs> trying to be trying to be kind very of sanguine, calm and sanguine about it. Yeah, but it was the fastest ever Paris Bay. The cycling podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Go to supersapiens.com and find out more about how the Super Sapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring can help you. A bit later on in the year, I will talk about how I used Super Sapiens last year. And it was one of the factors that encouraged me to look at my diet in quite a different way because I was noticing how I was reacting to certain types of food. But I will go into more detail on that a bit later on in the year. But go to supersapiens.com to find out how it all works. Well, that was a headlines, Daniel, but what did you make of it? I mean, it was a humdinger, wasn't it? We often call races humdingers, but this really was. Yes, it was from start to finish. I mean, I always say that Milan San Remo is a race that you sort of analyze with a microscope and Paris-Roubaix usually requires a sort of telescope, um, you know, things, they're sort of macro, movements and and things happen over a long period of time and it it can be quite a a frustrating race if your particular rider of choice um you know he's sort of marooned in a group behind the leader and you you know you're hoping that the situation will change quickly often that is not the case particularly towards the end of the race the strongest do tend to emerge and um the, the whole sort of picture tends to calcify towards the end and and we saw that in the last 20 kilometers didn't we van Baal was um, was simply the strongest and it, it never really feels particularly tactical particularly towards the end of the race um, as the, the tactics took place in the first half didn't they with with what Ineos did I mean you could look at that and say well actually you know the race came back together um, in the sort of middle portion and and they there, there were times when it felt as though they weren't really cashing in on all the great work that they'd done earlier but I suppose what it did allow them to do was to be serene and sanguine. I mean, much like yourself today, Lionel, very sanguine. And, um, and, and I suppose psychologically that must have helped. Yeah, I mean, we always review these races 
with the benefit of the results sheet, don't we? And you can look at it and say, well, Ineos Grenadiers didn't put a foot wrong because they kicked it off, but they finished it off. But it wasn't all plain sailing for them. Filippo Ganna had some problems, didn't he, after getting into a very good position. But they just always had um, the, the Van Bala card to play. And, and obviously, um, you know, he was sensational at the Tour of Flanders. I must admit, not a race I paid an awful lot of attention to at the time because uh, it was just a, a few days after Richard had passed away and I was on my bike ride in Scotland. Um, but this is, a, this is a real step on for Van Bala, isn't it? I mean, second at the World Championships last year, second in Flanders. Remember, he won Dwarz Door Vlaanderen last year with a sort of quite an impressive and quite long solo move. But this was another level, I thought, and uh, really finished it off with with a plum and like you say daniel there's that that sense that we kind of all relax a little bit the last 15 20k when it looked like it was done but of course anything could have happened another puncture or the incident that happened to lampart you know that that's always lurking there in a race like Paris bay it's never actually done until the line is crossed here in the velodrome but very impressive, I thought, from Van Bala and, and a really uh, mature performance. And all of a sudden, after years of us saying how underwhelming Sky and then Ineos have been in the Cobble Classics, they seem to have a, an extremely good team. Ben Turner running on fumes, I think, uh, a bit today. He said that he's never felt as tired as he felt this afternoon. But another impressive performance. But when you look at Sky and Ineos's previous results in Paris Bay. You have to go back to the very first year. Juan Antonio Fletcher was third in 2010, and then Ian Stannard was third in 2016. But it has not been a happy hunting ground for them. But they've quietly put together a really impressive unit. Yes, and and Van Bala is someone who kind of flies under the radar, partly because he he since while well, leaving the Rabobank system. Um, really at the start of his pro career um, he's not been in Dutch teams and there's all there always been more sort of famous decorated Dutch riders he's been in the shadow I mean he did a, an interesting interview with Le Keep the other day in which he said that this was the first ever well he, he claimed that it was the first ever interview he'd done with a French journalist that a, a French journalist had never called him at home before there were some other interesting things in that piece as well about you know, a bit about his family life. Um, his parents separated, I think, about 20 years ago. And since then, he's never spoken to his dad, or so it said in the piece. Um, he lost contact with his father. Um, heavily into his techno music, apparently. Loves a bit of that. And also rates himself as one of the three, I think he said, one of the three hardest working riders in the world in terms of the amount that he actually rides and trains, um, which was something I didn't... I didn't know um, about him, um, but he really specialises in these sort of stealth attacks, doesn't he? He made me think. There's a uh, Italian commentator on Eurosport, um, Riccardo Magrini, who's a rider in the '80s, and he always he's got this catchphrase or this um, this term that he often employs. He calls it a, una fagianata, which is like a, a, a pheasant flight. And he actually wrote a, he actually wrote a book um, with this in the title, where, in which well, he, he explained what this was a fagianata, and he explained it in the well in in an interview. That it's a stealth attack, two or three turns of the pedal, and like the pitter patter of a pheasant, which suddenly runs away without you even noticing. And and Van Bala does that. But I I came up watching it today. I was thinking um, of what other nicknames could could be applied to Van Bala. And I was thinking um, I might henceforth. Um, refer to him as the diamond thief. I can imagine him in a black turtleneck and some black leather leather gloves breaking into a safe 
um, you know that that sort of the, the sort of skulking over to one side of the road as he did I think he went on the right side of the road with 29 kilometers to go and just you know not getting out of the saddle it often comes after today I think um, it, it happened after a, a bit of an acceleration from Van Aert and it's just that momentary lull um, and he tends to capitalize on those, those moments and he did today and you know a lot was made of the fact that he also um, in the Tour of Flanders he attacked in the same place that he'd attacked the previous four years but they've all been characteristic Van Bala diamond thief moves I like that yeah sort of um, dodging the kind of the the, the laser security measures you know uh, in the diamond <laughs> yeah. heist just sort of contorting himself somehow or another and before you realize it <laughs> you look back and the diamond's gone um, it, well, he made the point in the press conference afterwards that last year in Paris-Roubaix, he was outside the time limit. He got into the velodrome uh, 29 that minutes 44. Um, well, that, that's, that's a good question. Outside the time limit one year and then top step of the podium the next. Um, well, if this was a regular podcast, I'd have a look for that but this is Arrive where where basically any any <laughs> research we don't care about facts no no but 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 you know we care even less about facts than usual and unless it's in the sort of pull down menu of things in my mind uh, I can't verify that <laughs> he did credit the Dutch national coach Koos Moerenhout for just um, adding to the sort of the confidence um, especially in the build up to the worlds last year where he got that silver medal um, and I mean he paid tribute obviously to to the team, uh, Ineos, that, that uh, well, I mean, they all played a role, as we might hear in a moment. But he was asked a curious question, uh, I thought, in the press conference about whether he hates the cobbles um, or whether he prefers to ride races without cobbles. Uh, this stemmed, I think, from an interview that he'd given where he did say he hated the cobbles. So I think perhaps the journalists were just fishing for, a, for that sort of line. But he just said, well, I think everyone prefers smooth tarmac, surely. Um, but I mean that's the thing isn't it with Paris-Roubaix the, the damage can be done on the cobbles but you don't have to necessarily enjoy uh, the experience it's uh, something to endure I guess um, you mentioned the techno music Daniel I went down to the Ineos bus which was parked a couple of streets away after the race uh, in search of Roger Hammond their sports director who is celebrating back-to-back Paris-Roubaix wins in the team car because he was in the Bahrain team car when Sonny Colbrelli won here in October um, I managed to speak to Roger for a few minutes about the Ineos tactics and we'll hear that but you might also hear the techno music booming out of the bus well Roger two wins in a row at Paris-Roubaix for you in the car not many yeah. riders have done that, have they? I'm trying to think of anyone who's done that. You have, probably have to go back to the days of De Vlamink, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, in terms of your day in the car and the way Ineos basically created the race from so far out, I mean, was that discussed? Because it was kind of unconventional to go 210 kilometres from the finish and really turn the screw that early. You know, I, if, to be honest with you, it was one of the things I, I talked about before the race in that we, you know, we'd seen this wind not enough but actually not normally enough but we just I remember saying you know there's it's so hard that bit of the race and we, we were talking more in terms of right let's 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 work as a group make sure that we don't lose the race there rather than you know really take it on and then you just saw the gust picking up a bit more and then you know we got we've got a really good um, road captain I mean Luke's Luke's been around the block a lot and uh, you know I'd like to see the percentage of times he makes a front group in the crosswind so when you've got somebody like leading like that on the road all you need to do is just give a bit of a sign of you know what to look out for just highlight the things and they they take it on themselves so um, 
because the conventional thinking is try to keep everything neat and tidy, conserve energy until the first section of cobbles. It is, but you know how many people to you know float around in the first half of Roubaix thinking you know we we sat a bit, sat in the meeting and, and the meeting was all about you know here's the first sector of cobbles. How do we enter into the first sector of cobbles? And I was just sitting there thinking it's quite a lot of racing to go before then with wind like that. So let's let's look a little bit earlier. So we just put, I think we just paid a lot of attention and I think we just you know, we caught caught a few people napping. That's all really, rather than you know rather than really wind playing havoc. It was just a few people napping and um, you know we I think I think that's. That's all we've done this year is just look for opportunities. If you don't have the f- clear favourite, you've got to look elsewhere. There's no point in riding until the wait until the end and going with them on the last sector on Carrefour de Laba and seeing who wins because we know, you know, that's not going to work out too well. Well, it's not, it's not our, adv- you know, we might, we might still win then, but it's just not our, it's not our advantage, is it? So, so were you happy with the riders that you got in that front split? Well, we had all seven, so we had to be happy, didn't we? <laughs> Don't get much better than that, really. Oh. I didn't actually team. know it was all seven. Actually. We could have had the team car in there as well, I suppose. <laughs> but you know, no, yeah, we were pretty happy with the seven out of seven. Yeah, yeah. So it was all right. Yeah, couldn't have gone better. But then I guess the pressure on a bit once you've made that split, a, a very visible move, and then you've got to make it work from there, and that's not a given, uh, obviously. Uh, no, but I think there's, you know, there's that mutual. We, I mean, we we worked, we invested, of course, but. Um, you know what you had to think was where was our best rider in the pecking order, and and probably would you put him above Van Aert? No, against Van der Poel individually, no. Uh, against Kung, maybe, but they were all out the back. So is, is, you know the difference is they're having to use all of their men. They were using all their bodies. So then we were using our numerical advantage, which is what we've been trying to do all year. And then I mean, what about Dylan? Because I mean that was impressive. It really seized the moment at exactly exactly the right time. It seemed to me. Yeah, I mean, Dylan's a, a, a superstar, really. I mean, you know, if, if you just think about what he's done over the last six months, second in the world, second in Tour of Flanders, one Paris-Roubaix. I mean, if that had been Van Aert, everyone would be dump, jumping off the, the roofs of the houses saying how wonderful he is. But you know, he's just one of those guys that quietly goes about his business. Ticket, you know, he's like a silent assassin, isn't he? Just doing it all quietly. And I, I've got a lot of time for that, actually. I like it. Yeah, he's, he's a great person to work with. Attention to detail's great. Um, and, and just, you know really demands it demands a lot of everybody because he demands a lot of himself but that's that's what we're here for and what about the other riders who played the support roles and did so so effectively uh, yeah i mean it's i think it's, it's always one of those things when you win races you're always singing high praises but i'm, I'm going to roll back to omelie pet newsblad and kuna Kuna where we finished 17th and 21st and i remember after that interview i said if the guys continue to ride like this, we're going to win bike races. And people are looking at me going, oh, hang on, you just, you just got your, your arse shown to you in these two races. I, I just think, that, um, you know, it's sort of this week has vindicated what we, what we talked about in the opening weekend. The, you know, every single one of those riders believed in the way of racing. And, and then you can see the belief in it because they've all outperformed their expectations. I think yeah, not, there's not one guy on that bus where, no, where somebody's saying, oh, he was a bit under par today. And that's why we're winning. And just lastly, I mean, this team has struggled really to create a classics team for these races. There'd been the odd moment and the odd rider over the years, but it just feels like there's a whole crop, especially with the youngsters, there's a whole crop just coming to uh, the boil at the same time. Yeah, I think I think it's just uh, you know uh, an, uh, an attention. You know, we in the winter we, we you know I, um, when I came to the team they talked to me about change. They want they were looking at a change of philosophy. They want to write race and race properly. So we had a bit more freedom to you know and to to apply that. You know, so it's a philosophy from Dave and Rod really in that 
you know, let's go out there and do some bike racing. And, and you know, that's what they're doing and enjoying it. And, and then it's on the road. People are enjoying it as well, I hope. Well, it sounds like they're enjoying it in there. It sounds like a nightclub. Is that your music choice? Yeah, definitely my playlist. Yeah, I've had that going all day in the car. <laughs> well, Lionel, that was Roger Hammond. Of course, you mentioned his pedigree um, was a Paris-Roubaix. I think you mentioned his pedigree as a Paris-Roubaix um, rider. Well, he was on the podium, wasn't he, in 2004 when Magnus Baxter won. Uh, but as but as sports director, he's you know he's really uh, well back to back wins. You can't get uh, better than that, really. I, I did actually. I we cut out my first question uh, not because I made a mistake in it, but I did. I was thrashing around for the last back to back rider victories in Paris Bay. Uh, Tom Boonen, of course, 2008 and nine. Uh, I thought it must have been De Vlaming, but there've been a few before that because I think Moser won three in a row, didn't he? In the, uh, late 70s and Gilbert Duclos Lazalle won in 92 and 93. Uh, on Hammond, Lionel, I mean, a lot has, has rightly been made of Ineos's fantastic classics campaign and well, it, it's really a changing of the guard at Ineos, isn't it? Just in terms of personnel with Sheffield, Turner, Pidcock and, and the, their sort of reputation or their image as a, as a Grand Tour team fading slightly receding um partly because of course um, Egan Bernal's had the awful accident so his ambitions have sort of been put on on hold but I just wonder you know Hammond's arrived this year I wonder how big a role he's played um and how big a contribution to that he has made um you know you, you mentioned winning with Corbrelli last year it struck me today and this is something I wanted to ask you um you're so much is made now of the equipment in Paris Bay and and you know how to how to gain an advantage through the equipment and um, when Mohoric was away and he looked to be he looked as though he was romping to victory um, you know I, th- I thought to thought back to something I'd read about the the equipment that he was using at Paris Bay this week and I think he was the only rider in the field or one of the only riders in the field with 32 millimeter tires um, but then on the other hand we also saw an in- inordinate number of punctures today and I just wondered about the risk reward equation there's been so much talk and so many articles and so much punditry in the last few years at Paris Bay about the you know tire pressure and tubeless tires and so forth and so on I just wondered whether some teams maybe had got it wrong and fallen the wrong side of the risk reward equation today yeah it was actually something Stefan Kung addressed in the press conference afterwards because he was asked why it was such a fast race the fastest average speed ever and he said the conditions were absolutely perfect dry uh, meant that the, the the cobblestones were you know relatively fast to ride obviously if they're wet and muddy that slows everything down so good traction um, but he said also the bikes do have a huge part to play. He said he was watching footage of the 2011 race, only 11 years ago, but the bikes are like night and day just in terms of the the, the aerodynamics and the, the design of them. It, you know, they do look different, but I think the, the sort of the, the gains that have been made in recent years uh, is, are significant. But you're right, Daniel, there were a lot of punctures and a lot of punctures at key times. I mean, Wout van Aert was asked, um, whether it was the mechanicals that cost him or whether it was because he obviously hasn't raced since Ghent Wevergen because he uh, was out with COVID and missed the Tour of Flanders and decided not to come back for Amstel Gold. Um, I mean, he wasn't making any excuses at all, but he did say that the punctures that he had came at awful moments right at the start of the Arenberg, which meant riding on a flat tyre for most of that section 
difficult then to get service and get another bike because of the team cars have to go round the the long way round, don't they? They don't go over the Arenberg section. So really, if you could pick a worst place um, to puncture in Paris-Roubaix, you, you'd be struggling. Um, and, and he's just said it was it was difficult to keep on top of what was going on in the race. He was asked about the sort of the chaotic feel, and you couldn't really get a handle on it, could you? Watching, didn't know. Oh, this is an important moment. There were moments where it felt like it was ramping up a bit, and Van Aert was responsible for a couple of those. Uh, there was one around 60 kilometres to go where he was looking very lively. But it was reassuring to hear him say that he found it just as confusing. He said it's it's exactly the same for the riders. There's only fragments of information um, to go on. You get a bit from the team car, perhaps. It feels as though Pyro Bay, um, you know, rather than sort of podcasts and articles, it needs some kind of government commission um, to investigate what actually happened. Or maybe, maybe just Seb Piquet, <laughs> maybe just Seb Piquet standing at the finish line handing out questionnaires. It feels as though every rider should have to fill out a questionnaire. How many times did you puncture? How many times did you crash? Yeah, and then this, well, basically 18 months' time, we're still wondering where the Seb PK report is, and it's been just shoved in a drawer <laughs> yeah. somewhere in uh, the south of France and forgotten about. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it is. I mean, it was, a, it was absolutely uh, incredible to watch. Um, I mean, Van Aert was unlucky, um, but they, they were put in the... Well, they were put in the wrong position. They were put on the back front. Him, um, Matthew van der Poel... Stefan Kuhn, Kasper Askren, less of an issue because he did have teammates up front at least for quick step. But, I mean, caught out, really. Caught out before the cobbles um, were really even on the horizon. And I suppose going back to what Roger Hammond said about looking for an, an opportunity that might catch people by surprise, Ineos certainly did that. And I suppose Van Aert, they patiently worked their way back up didn't they they didn't panic there wasn't a great deal of panic uh, Stefan Kung also said Group Armour did a lot of work just to kind of hold the gap initially they didn't want to overdo it and blow people out of the race he also I believe had a nature break pretty much just right before um, Ineos started to force the pace and that cost him that's that's exactly right and I mean he said uh, he was asked how important this race is to the team Group Armour of course is a French team but his sports director, sorry, director sportif, I know you, you, you know, use the proper terminology style, when referring to the French, yeah. Um, Frédéric Guédon, the last French winner of Paris-Roubaix, of course, back in 1997, 25 years ago now, that feels like yesterday to me, but uh, Guédon in the team car, and of course Marc Madio, another Paris-Roubaix winner in the past, is the general manager. So, obviously, uh, a big, big race for Kung, but he said that there was no pressure there was no kind of recrimination so he just got unlucky he especially got unlucky I think of their riders only Lewis Askey the young British rider was in the front group so they, they told him to sit tight and the others just worked away and there was a bit of cooperation they, they realised they didn't have to get it back before the first section of cobbles it was uh, it was a you know a, a slow burn um, because mistakes made in the aftermath of being caught out would have been even more costly I guess yeah no, I I thought at one point that that was the, the game that van der Poel was playing I mean so far this year since he's come back from injury it seems like he's put down his sledgehammer and picked up a, a sort of samurai sword he seems to have been uh, well he's been very patient and quite mature compared to and the way he's ridden in previous years, or at least it's appeared that way. And, and it seemed to be the case again. Um, at one point, he was generally following Van Aert rather than making his own moves, but um, he obviously ran out of gas. Yeah, Van der Poel, 
well, you said uh, Van Baal is the diamond thief. I mean, Van der Poel is a diamond thief. Would be uh, trying to sort of crack safes with uh, bag bagpipes, wearing clogs, and a sort of one-man band outfit on his back. I mean, usually you can see what he's going to do a mile off. He was relatively muted today, leading me to think maybe he's not on the best day. But then when Van Aert made that little one of those little moves that looked like it might be the significant one. He was alert and he was there, um, but he just wasn't quite the same figure in the race that he had been last year, where, of course, he got done on the line, really, by Cole Brelly. Any, any sightings of Patrick Lefebvre in the, in the Velodrome, Lionel? Um, no. Is he, is he chasing... Suspect... Can you see him now chasing his riders around the Roubaix Velodrome with a rolled-up newspaper, with a rolled-up <laughs> newsblad? <laughs> the Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport... Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can all get 25% off the full range of Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. Uh, that code doesn't work in conjunction with any other offers that Science in Sport are running at any particular time, but if you fill up your basket with, with goodies and apply the code, uh, you'll get 25% off. Daniel, you mentioned Quickstep. I mean, Eve Lampart was looking decent for a podium uh, position until that very unfortunate incident. The spectator appeared to get just too close and his hand caught Lampart's handlebars as, as he was actually on a smooth bit of tarmac to the edge of the cobbles. But then when he was sent into the cobbles, the front wheel twisted and he was sent flying in a really, um, well, pretty dramatic way. Did see Lampart come in because he was 10th over the line, Quick Step's best rider, and he was greeted by his, uh, I want, well, I don't want to assume and say wife, but partner and uh, young, very young child, and uh, had some, you know, some wounds on him, so a painful fall. Florian Seneschal was 13th, um, but I think the two men of the day, I have to say, Tom de Vriet of Antomarche, and in fact the whole Antomarche team, I mean, they've really stepped up and had a very good spring, but de Vriet in fourth, Adrian Petit in 6th and Alexander Christoph, the old war horse, in 12th. Really fine day for them. But what about Mohoric? I mean, one Milan San Remo in really spectacular fashion with the dropper seat post and was looking, well, I mean, he was up there. Then when he punctured, he got back up there again. It was an extraordinary ride. Yeah, it was Lionel. And, you know, not, not a guy with massive pedigree in Paris. He's ridden it a few times. I look back, actually, I think he, he rode the... Would it be the junior or the espoir um, in 2014 or, or even before that, actually, 2013, 12, around about that time? And then um, didn't ride it until or hasn't ridden it until quite recently, the last two or three years. Um, he has cut his teeth at Roubaix. And, you know, he's a guy who's, who's loose on the bike, isn't he? We talked about this at Milan San Remo, his ability um, to correct mistakes on descents and... Um, yeah, he's he's just growing in stature with every month, isn't isn't he? I mean, it seems a, an awfully long time ago now that you know. I remember when he turned professional and turned professional as a teenager, and there were there were some concerns at Liquid Gas, which was the team he was riding for, that um, he, he wasn't cut out for life as a professional cyclist. He was he was too intelligent, um, thought too much about things, everything. 
Um, and, and it wasn't really clear at that point either what kind of rider he was going to be. And to be honest, it's pretty difficult to pigeonhole him now. I can't really think of another rider in the peloton who's anything like him. You know, not, not particularly a climber, time trialist, uh, puncher, but he can do absolutely... Well, he can do most things, can't he? He can indeed. Um, Wout van Aert, of course, second place. I mean, he'll win this race one day, surely. Um, but uh, I was staggered to hear in the commentary uh, from our friend Rob Hatch that no Belgian champion, reigning Belgian champion, has ever won Paris-Roubaix in the Tricolor jersey. I, I thought that was extraordinary, um, but undoubtedly true because Rob Hatch said it. Belgians have won by far, they're, they're by far the, the winningest nation, aren't they? Just an aside on the Belgians, Philippe Gilbert wore the number one today and he was the winner in 2019, which feels like a long, long time ago now because, of course, the race was cancelled in 2020 because of COVID and then delayed last year also because of COVID. And Gilbert's career has really, well, the decline has been fairly steep since then, but I guess it does, well, it's three years ago now, it, uh, only two editions ago, but three years ago. And, of course, the defending champion, Sonic Olbrelli unable to ride because he had the cardiac arrest at the Volta a Catalunya last month and is still on the sidelines and hopefully resting and recovering um, back at home. We should probably mention also a bit more about Stefan Kuhn, the Group Armour FDJ rider. A really impressive classics campaign. Someone else has had a big step up this year and he was talking about the confidence that he's had um, from the results, really. This spring, third at E3, sixth at Dwarsdor Vlaanderen, fifth at the Tour of Flanders, eighth at Amstel Gold, and then third today. And uh, he was saying that, uh, well, people may not be aware that uh, the, whereas the winner gets a giant cobblestone as their prize, the riders who are on the podium get smaller versions of the cobblestone trophy. And he said he's going to take it home, put it in his living room and know that there's a big brother to go with it one day. So clearly he's finding his way as a real force in these races and looks very strong in the final phases of these very long races. The problem he's got is he perhaps doesn't have the finish. So he does need to find a way to get away. And, and I, I suppose the next step is work out how he can do a Van Bala and get away on his own. Yes, Lionel. He's he's done quite a bit of work this winter on uh, not sort of changing nature as a rider, but he certainly adapted his training with his coach um, Julian Pino, Thibaut's brother, and he's talked about be possibly becoming a bit less of a time trialist. He also talked quite a bit this week prior to Paris-Roubaix about the mistakes that that team made last year with equipment. I mean, I mentioned punctures and tyres earlier on, but. Um, he talks about the fact that they've used a new a new tubeless tire last year and it hadn't worked at all or it, in, in those particular conditions and they they tweaked that they tweaked their approach um, for today and well based on what he said at the finish it seems to have worked. Yeah, he also paid tribute to his team because they did an awful lot of work. He particularly mentioned Olivier Legac, who uh, well one of the features of Paris Roubaix is never give up keep coming forward because you just don't know what might happen and Legat kept coming back up to the group and kept being of some use and um, he said he was very proud of the way that his teammates rode and he owes them a beer tonight and I think it's important sometimes we get so fixated on you know second place being kind of first loser um, but in a race like Paris-Roubaix where you know absolutely anything can happen and does happen um, just getting on the podium after a race like today's is a, a real team effort 
Oh, indeed, it's the one race in the calendar that riders talk about being proud to even finish, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Lionel, it's been, I guess, it's been a tough weekend for you. Um, we're slightly bereft this weekend, missing our, our third wheel. I mean, um, I, I guess it's, it's felt pretty poignant for you. I know you were there, I think, last year, weren't you, a few months ago only with Richard? Yeah, it has been a poignant weekend, Daniel, and I have felt Richard's loss quite um, starkly really because we were here six months ago and never more so than in the scrum at the finish where you know you've got somebody else who's got your back you know I'm trying to speak to riders or you know get some material for the podcast and I suppose I had taken for granted the fact that Richard would always come back with a kind of shopping bag full of stuff and say oh who did you get and if I hadn't had a very good finish he would, uh, he would come up with the goods um, you know nine times out of ten or ten times out of ten in Richard's case but there have been a lot more journalists here today, Daniel, and everyone has come up to me and, and expressed their sadness and shock. And, well, in the words of Hugo Kordovitz, our colleague from the Belgian media, he was shocked and saddened. He'd seen Richard just the day before at Gent-Wevergem, but his parting words to me were, you must go on. And um, so that's what, what we are doing. But it's been very nice of everyone to um, express their best wishes to me and to you Daniel as well they've all asked me to pass on their wishes and it feels like a, an important step really because I don't think the grieving process is going to suddenly come to any kind of conclusion um, but it's, it is a process and so this weekend has felt like it was the right decision to come here and be here um, and, and I suppose um, well all day today I was thinking back to last year and recording the links for the podcast outside the velodrome and just watching the race and and thinking just how much Richard would have enjoyed it. I mean, he would have absolutely reveled in today's race and trying to unpick it and work out what the stories were and trying to make sense of it. And uh, so I've missed that the most today. Well, yesterday, Lionel, uh, you and, and Lizzie did the um, Arrive podcast after the um, women's race and we premiered our new logo, didn't we? Our new Buffalo logo, which we'll endure, which will accompany the podcast, um, well, henceforth until until we get sued by Red Bull, possibly, which um, Rich, Richard would would find endlessly amusing shades of... Shades of um, your anxieties about us being sued for reciting or um, our rendition of Happy Birthday at the Jira in 2016. Um, I, I, of course, was thinking about Richard as well when the race went through Picardy, which was his um, adopted home as of a, a couple of years ago. And also, um, I remembered going to... I don't think I'm re revealing a trade secret here. I think he might have even talked about it in the book, but um, or mentioned it, hopefully, in the acknowledgements, that um, I helped Richard out a little bit with the some of his interviews for slaying the badger before he was completely fluent in french and um, i interviewed cyril guimar the the um legendary director sportif there in the in the velodrome in roubaix and i can remember richard and i well rich was was thrilled with the interview and i can remember talking to guimar about eno and him giving me these great quotes particularly about eno, eno's nocturnal habits and the way he was in the team hotel and I remember asking him at one point, you know, how did he know sleep? Was he a good sleeper? Was he a heavy sleeper, um, light sleeper? And Guimar said, well, the badger doesn't sleep. The badger keeps watch. 
And um, <laughs> and this was the the kind of quote that yeah, I mean, you know very well, Lionel, as a uh, you know a, an expert features writer yourself. But this is the, the the kind of quote when you get something like that, you sort of salivate over it and you savor it. And and Rich was just so thrilled when I came back with this. It, um, you know, whatever else Guimard had said um, was of secondary importance because this this was a line that people were really going to going to remember. So um, that certainly crossed my mind when I saw Van Bala coming into the the velodrome um, past where we'd we'd done that interview today. I think he'd also appreciate that we kept the football analogies to just the one today. Yes, yes, we won't mention, we won't talk any further about the LOSC-Lance game last night, although I'm intrigued to find out how it was. Well, uh, the big noise uh, in this part of France, the Derby du Nord between Lille and Lens, two towns very close to each other. It was, uh, well, I didn't see any away fans. I think they may have been uh, banned from the game because of previous incidents at uh, matches between the two clubs. But uh, it was a two... There was a, well, the last game, there was a riot. It's, uh, the last game a few months ago, there was a, yeah, some kind of to-do. Well, that explains it. Uh, but an unhappy night for the home fans because they lost 2-1. Uh, but it was a it was a great um, it was a great event, and again I think through uh, just you know learned a little bit more about the the city of Lille just by going to the game and and uh, you know seeing a bit more of the city because we kind of avoid it a bit when the Paris Roubaix is on and when the Tour de France goes into that um, part of France because it's just a mass of kind of motorways, isn't it? You, I mean it's a very difficult place to drive across across without going wrong. Um, suddenly the you realise you're not following the right line on the sat-nav and uh, your big long deviation going round the houses. On which note, I guess I'd, I'd better bid you, well, good luck getting on the, is it the Eurotunnel line tonight or the P&O? Uh, well, the P&O, no, I wouldn't, wouldn't have taken the ferry anyway. I'm on the Eurotunnel. It was um, reasonably okay coming across, quite a lot of delays at the moment, so goodness knows what time I'll get home, but... Um, uh, I will set off um, as soon as I've uploaded the files, Daniel. We'd, uh, we'd better leave it there. We, we're going to be back on Wednesday for Flesh Wallone and an arrivé from the uphill cheese roll, as you call it. Flesh, Flesh Wallone, the uphill cheese roll, the race I vowed to be, to be emphatically enthusiastic about this year, having declared it the worst race in cycling for every one of the last <laughs> 10 seasons. Well, I'll hold you to that on Wednesday afternoon. Until then, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Lionel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.